Well, hello, Liz. <laughs> I'm Look at that. Fellas, fellas, you need some advice out there. You can make a woman laugh just by saying her name and being shirtless on a Zoom call. He's not shirtless. You have a shirt on. You have two shirts on. This is paint. This is body paint I purchased <laughs> uh, for it's high price. They're running out of this stuff everywhere. You know what's funny, actually? They are really jacking the price up on a bunch of stuff. I was looking, this like a friend of mine posted on Instagram a bunch of like Sculpey magnets she made. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's cute. And I went on Amazon and I was like, wonder if you could get like a Sculpey set. And they were selling one for $250. Wow. I know. I bought a I bought a Scrabble board for $35. How much is it usually? I don't know. I never bought one before. There's always just been oh. in whatever house I moved into. <laughs> That's true. I feel like how all houses should just come with Scrabble. You know, I, I've, I've recently become a black powder man for uh, for my- Excuse me? A black powder. Well, I'm always a black powder man, but a black powder man for my ammunition. I've been making my own oh, ammunition. Okay. Um, oh boy, here we and go. I'm thinking of just starting to sell it at the liquor store or something. It's starting like kind of a small, you know how like girls got really into crafts in like 2008? Yeah, this is your, your dude's craft. Fellas, we are making our own ammunition for black powder, <laughs> uh, for black powder weapons now. You're an entrepreneur. Dude, I honestly, I got billionaire mindset. Hashtag guy boss. I've been getting a lot of billionaire mindset like youtube ads i don't know if women get these you guys probably get fit this is like the i don't even know what that is what's billionaire mindset? are you familiar with fit t yes so there's a version of fit t for men called billionaire mindset it's not like it doesn't keep you thin it doesn't i don't know what fit t does to you but probably nothing good it's it's a series of videos where a man stands in front of nice cars and tells you to have a certain kind of mindset uh and then he talks about a lot about passive income, which I think means investments. Hmm. Um, anyways, if you uh, if you're a fella, you are getting these videos every two minutes, even if um, you don't have any sort of mindset. I have a mindset, but my mindset has put me on the trail of the Holy Grail. It's not put me on the trail of being a billionaire. Why are the, those could be related? If I find the Grail, sweetheart, do you know if a Jew's hands? In, in in if I ensconce the Grail between my between my calloused fingers, and I hunch over like this, and I sup from it, it will have effects that no man can predict. Oh, That's why I must. I'm on. I'm on. You know, I'm calling you from the plane to Iceland right now. You got Grail mindset. Mm-hmm. I've been reading the Edda, baby. Grail boss. I'm a grail boss. <laughs> Here we are once again. Welcome to the inner zone, motherfuckers. <laughs> no, welcome to True and On. I'm Liz. I'm Brace, joined by producer Young Chomsky. What do we got going today, Brace? We are. In- I'm so juiced for this. Uh, I know. We are interviewing the recluse. That's that's right, baby. We finally okay, got. Can him. you? Can you? <laughs> Can you explain? Well, all right. The recluse, he recently started, he revealed himself, although he still, I believe, goes by the recluse. This is Steven mm-hmm. Snyder from viceupview.blogspot.com, which is a, a fantastic resource for anybody with Epstein brain or, or a, any sort of, listen, 
any kind of brain. It is a fantastic website, which let me just read from the header. This dedicated to exploring the vast Fortean realms of mind control, deep politics, sacred geometry, automatology, and synchronicity. Occult films and music, the supernatural, the extraterrestrial, and the multidimensional high weirdness in all its many forms. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, it's interesting timing because I don't know if all of our listeners know this, but just a couple of days ago, we were accused of being a Nazi podcast. Yes. Apparently some goys don't like the fact that me and my fellow Jewish podcasters joke about being Jewish. Well, you know, we, we, we had to give it to them. You know, so they called us a Nazi podcast. So we said, you know, a- any lesser podcast would say, what are you talking about? But you know what we say on Trunon? You want a Nazi podcast? We'll give you a Nazi we'll podcast. Give you, a, you think, you think, motherfucker, you think because you got a proud boy fired from Pet Boys? Motherfucker, I am tracking down Klaus Barbie. Yeah, so we're talking, what, fascist international neo-Nazi cabal. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's get this bad boy rolling. Welcome to our main event. We have, I'm very excited about this, uh, th- this episode. As, as many people have known, I have been uh, on my cre- quest for the grail. And, and through that, I have been battling the post-war Nazis and reading my way through what's going on with them. Uh, and, and with us uh, to, to help with that task, we have the recluse, Steven Snyder himself, of, uh, of visupview.blogspot.com. Uh, and Stephen, you have a book out as well, right? Yes, sir. It is uh, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History. Uh, Stephen, what is... So before we get into what the really media we're talking about, Visa View, I read it. Many people I know read it. But what is it? What is the, what is the purpose of the, of the blog? Well, it's it's changed quite a bit over the years. Uh, ironically, it actually was kind of started as primarily a uh, a paranormal investigation thing back in 2010, I think it was. Uh, yeah, the VISUP is uh, Volusia Investigative Society of Unexplained uh, Phenomena. Uh, obviously, it's going far beyond that purpose over the years. Uh, <laughs> yes. kind of lost touch with it somewhat. I mean, you know, I'm still into a lot of the paranormal and the high weirdness stuff too, but I mean, certainly uh, for the last seven, eight years or so, it became more of a, a parapolitical-oriented blog, but um, I almost kind of inevitably find myself being drawn back to the paranormal and the occult and so forth to try to ultimately explain any of the uh, yes. you know, geopolitical things I'm looking at. So <laughs> kind of goes full circle, I suppose. Yeah, I've been reading uh, a bunch of sort of Lavenda to prepare, early Lavenda to prepare for this. Uh, so I've been getting through Unholy Alliance, which has definitely, I believe, put me in the right mindset. So what we're talking about today uh, are Nazis. Specifically, uh, the Nazis who decided at the end of World War II that they didn't want to either blow their brains out or uh, work for the Soviets or get captured by the Soviets, but they wanted to go to South America. Now, can you explain to me what exactly all this was going on? You know, there's the rat lines, there's people who got there on certain kind of strange passports, but really, what was the scale of the, uh, the sort of Nazis who went to South America? Well, I mean, it was certainly pretty significant, and I mean, there were several waves. Um, 
Of course, the plans for this, you know, kind of transference had begun even before the war. It ended around uh, probably 1943 or so. Um, certain figures within the SS had started to come to the conclusion that they probably would not prevail, of course. Um, you know, with the mindset that prevailed in Nazi Germany, that really wasn't something that you wanted to put into writing, so to speak. So a yes. lot of it was kind of done covertly setting up, you know, kind of the transference of assets and so forth. Um, they used a lot of companies and that type of thing to manage this. Uh, and then, of course, as the war was winding down, you started to see an uptick in assets being transferred out. Um, you know, one of the big ones, for instance, was uh, Sofindus, uh, S-O-F-I-N-D-U-S. That was the abbreviation of the company, but um, some Spanish name that I do not recall off the top of my head. But essentially, it was run by a full-blown SD asset, which was the Foreign Intelligence Service yes. of the SS. And, um, you know, one of the major figures, Carlos Fonder, I believe, had been an early guy involved with So Find Us, and then he kind of later took on uh, the actual transference, the rat lines from Spain into South America and so forth. But, I mean, you kind of had this, you know, a lot of these just massive amounts of gold, tons and tons of it being transferred in the final days of the war to kind of, you know, set up a nest egg for these uh you know, post-war activities, essentially. And then, of course, in the immediate falling aftermath of the war, the British and the U.S., and to some extent the Vatican, all started to get involved in this as well, as there was, um, you know, kind of a mad dash for assets. Yes. What was it specifically about South America that made it uh, such a, you know, key destination? Well, I mean, for one thing, the Germans had already had a lot of business dealings and what have you in South America, uh, in the years leading up to the war, of course, in countries like Argentina, you mm -hmm. already had kind of large German populations living there. And I mean, I've obviously never been there, but I mean, I've heard areas in the su southern cone like Chile and what have you are, you know, fairly similar, you know, in terms of just the landscape, the climate and so forth to Germany. So, you know, I'm sure there was probably a certain appeal with that, too. But um you know, there were a lot of benefits to it, um, and then certainly, too, a lot of the regimes down there were very receptive to the Nazis. I mean, they had already had dealings with them the years leading up to, you know, the end of the war, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, all these technical skills and so forth were suddenly looking for a new home, and, you know, a lot of people thought this was a great way to maybe advance their industrial capabilities, scientific, so on, and that type of thing. Yeah, I, there's actually a lot of people don't know this, but Ernst Röhm uh, was a military advisor in South America. I can't remember exactly which country uh, during the 1920s. And in fact, some of these countries had such large, uh, you know, German populations. Originally, a lot of Jews who were escaping the Nazis, and then ironically, a lot of Nazis came down there. But like, I believe that the Nazi Party had its own like sections specifically for for like Argentina and Brazil that had basically replicated the German Nazi party in full and took total command of them, which is really wild if you think about it. Um, and so a lot of these kind of big name guys fled to there. I mean, most famously, uh, you know, Joseph Mengele, um, but other ones too, like Klaus Barbie and of course, Adolf Eichmann. Um, these guys found a pretty receptive environment, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, especially with Perón in Argentina, there was a pretty much the red carpet full-blown rolling out for <laughs> yes. them. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there definitely was not a lot of protest, especially in the Southern Cone, to their presence there, certainly. Yeah, and it's, it's I think, one way I've heard it explained is that in South America, there were not a lot of Jews. 
but there were a lot of communists. And so we see what kind of became true everywhere is that is that this this uh, basically assault on Jews became. I mean, obviously the antis or the Nazis were extremely anti-communist, but the anti-communism really became you know first and foremost the the goal of the post-war Nazis and. Um, a lot of these guys sort of integrated with like uh, I, I know you've written about the World, World Anti-Communist League um, and organizations such as that as well. Oh yeah, well I mean, and it wasn't just you know the German Nazis that were fleeing either. Yeah. I mean, you ended up with a lot of the Quislings. Um, I know there was actually, I believe, a pretty big colony of um, French collaborators, if I remember correctly, that had been set up in Argentina uh, in the aftermath of the war. So I mean, there were a lot of these, you know, I mean, former quote-unquote, former fascist Nazis, I mean, wandering around there. And, uh, I mean, in the case of, you know, again, the French, it wasn't even necessarily the anti-Semiticism that was a driving factor. I mean, the French fascist movements had really just kind of embraced that more to appease the Germans, um, you know, in the mm. aftermath of the, or, I mean, after they had been defeated. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys, their kind of pretext had always been anti-communism from the beginning. So, yeah. at some extent, that became more prevalent, uh, especially when, you know, obviously just the German racial policies and so forth were just simply untenable in the post-war years. So, you know, you needed something to rally the troops around. Yeah. And you can be racist in South America. You just have to have a more uh, diverse view of racism instead of <laughs> Europe, where you can only be racist against like a few people. In South America, you have a lot to choose from. So you sort of got to, you know, regurgitate all, or excuse me, like uh, mix all around, make a new sort of stew. Um one of these countries where where pre-war there were several actual Nazi parties, pre-World War II, this country had several Nazi parties of their own, including hosting, I believe, a Brazilian one as well, was uh, Chile. And in Chile, yeah. there, was, there was a little something uh, called Colonia Dignidad. And could you give us uh, a little primer on that real quick, just the uh, sort of base around that? Well, it emerged at some point in the early 60s, uh, 60, 61, 62, somewhere thereabouts. Uh, most of the individuals there were pretty much all German nationals. They had moved and well, I mean, it wasn't all one big move. There had been several waves of it in the early 60s. Um, essentially, they had ended up with a rather large compound in the southern part of the state. It was, you know, theoretically a kind of agricultural experiment that was supposed to be self-sustaining. They had their own factories. They had a lot of farmland and so forth. Um, the villages were kind of set up in a traditional Bavarian fashion, and everybody, you know, wore historic clothing. It was, you know, a bit of a LARP, I suppose, and some are we levels. talking? Are we talking lederhosen here? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, My yeah. I mean, God. it was kind of meant to look like one of those, you know, propaganda videos yeah. from Nazi Germany when they went out into the countryside and everybody was dancing in the fields. So and- it's sort of like, you know how people dress up like Spider-Man and go to the conventions because they like Spider-Man? This is similar to like, these are like, yeah, Bavarian LARPers, I guess. They saw a Lenny yeah. Riefenstahl That's movie. It's like Comic-Con. Like, yeah. yeah, very it's much It's Comic-Con so. for guys who like Lenny Riefenstahl instead of Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, just a very much a romanticism for the way that you know things essentially existed in this idealistic, you know, pre-industrial state before you know the decay of the cities and the you know influx of foreigners that this had brought and that type of thing. So, yeah, and I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, it was very much an escape uh, from 
you know, Europe, when in a lot of senses it was seen as split between the U.S. and the Soviets, and of course a mm-hmm. lot of them didn't like the presence of the Americans there uh, with many African-American soldiers and that type of thing. So, I mean, it was a way to kind of retreat from the outside world, try to set up something that was pure, that would be distant and isolated, and it could flourish and survive, at least in theory. Um, but, yeah, and... Um, <laughs> Of course, you know, there was all the, you know, staples of a cult or cult indoctrination, uh, 12 okay. to 14 hour work days. The sexes were rigorously separated. There was, you know, a lot of effort taken to ensure that there wasn't sexual activity or really romantic ones of any type. Uh, and then, of course, there was the hallmark of group confessions. I mean, a lot of times they were divided up into dormitories at the end of each week. You had to get up and, you know, in front of everybody and expose your sins and go through the whole process of group humiliation and public shaming and all that good stuff. So, yeah. And then, of course, you know, I mean, they had more... Serious methods involving drugs, electroshock therapy, and all that good stuff that was already being toyed with, I believe, by at least the late 60s. Yeah, and it's funny because it's sort of like you start talking about it and you're like, see, it was just supposed to be this idyllic, you know, like you say, Bavarian oasis. And then it's like, uh, but also it was a crazy cult. And also, as you know, we kind of like get further into the history, it's like, you know, became like a key part of the Pinochet regime with all of the detention camps. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even beyond that, um, you know, Operation Condor in general, which really combined the intelligence services across the Southern Cone. So Hold up. Not to interrupt you, but for those of our listeners who don't know, people who might have been searching for another podcast by mistake, people who just listened to us at the gym for white noise, can you please explain to them, what is Operation Condor? Well, Condor was a program that was initiated by uh, several of the different intelligence services in the Southern Cone, though really Chile was the the driving force behind it. And uh, at this particular time in history, there were, you know, Marxist insurgencies in practically every country in the Southern Cone. And the way a lot of these guys were able to sustain their movements is when things became too hot in the country, where the government they were trying to overthrow, to overthrow they would just cross the border, hide out there, and, you know, wait till things died down. So a lot of these intelligence services, they wanted to be able to pursue them across borders, essentially. So this started as an arrangement where, okay, you've got a rebel group in Argentina and they flee into Chile. Well, you know, the Chilean service will go and arrest them, or maybe the Argentinians can just cross over to the border and kill them themselves, you know, but we'll figure out a way to eliminate them. So essentially there would be nowhere in the entire Southern Cone that they could hide whatsoever. And it was so successful that they decided to expand it really to the entire world. So now you start seeing assassinations carried out in Europe, in the United States, where now, essentially, they wanted to put the mindset into everyone that there's nowhere you could hide from us. We will track you down to the ends of the earth, and we will kill you there. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about, about Condor is because it, it, you know, it's happening also concurrently along with Operation Gladio in Europe, but it really is like, I mean, it's a combination of, of basically every scumbag in the Western Hemisphere, and that Southwestern Hemisphere, getting together. I mean, there are Cuban exiles. There are there's Pinochet. There's Klaus fucking Barbie. Um, it's 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 really astounding. It was pretty effective too. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, on top of that, especially when you look at, like, uh, you know, the Italian neo-fascists and what have mm -hmm. you, um, people yes. like Stefano del Sayac and what have you. I mean, these guys were basically, you know, I mean, they were involved in the, the Gladio-type operations in Italy. And then when they started to draw too much attention from the authorities, many of them were giving refuge in uh, the southern cone of South America. And then they went to work again on the stuff with Condor and what have you. So uh, on top of everything else, there was direct overlap with the assets as well. So you know i mean a lot of these guys like you're saying i mean it's basically a collection of almost every scumbag on the planet at the time and they're all kind of involved in these different programs and what have you um and then in the case of what was it a ginter press uh was a uh quote-unquote press service that was set up in lisbon and portugal it was comprised of all these you know veterans from the oas the french uh types Wait, who had failed journalist service yeah, yeah. Well, it was um, mm. essentially, okay, when you get into covert operations, there are two different facets of it, okay? You've got the paramilitary end, which is all the special operations forces guys and what have you. But on the other hand, you have psychological warfare specialists, which is closely entwined with all this. The British invented this, and when it was all, you know, it originated with the Ministry of Economic Warfare, and you had the, prop, uh, the political warfare executive and the special operations executive in the same body. And these things were combined for a simple reason. Because you can go out into the countryside and assassinate an official, but if you don't have a war specialist to put it into context, you don't get the full effect out of it. Right, totally. And, and that all was combined in a place like Ginter, which was a totally private operation, essentially. I mean, it got funding from uh, the Portuguese intelligence services, but it got funding from a lot of other sources as well. And most of these guys, they were French, they were former Nazis, there were these neo you know neo fascist Italians there pretty much a smorgasbord of rightists from across the world involved in it, and it poses as a press service. It put a lot of effort into penetrating the communists, especially those associated with the Chinese and what have you yep um so it's a big psychological warfare operation and um from the French perspective specifically it's to intoxicate these groups that was the you know the way they thought of it essentially intoxicate yes how do you, intoxication. How do you I, 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 now that's well, the job of podcasters. <laughs> well, in the French perspective, intoxication in this sense essentially meant the poisoning of the mind effectively. Mm. Okay, so yeah, podcasters. Too. That's such a French way of putting all of it. Yes, yes, yes. It's like it always has to be the most romantic version of something. <laughs> so, I, go, go on. So these Aginner guys, I mean, they got their press service, they're doing all their war stuff, intoxicating the mind, poisoning the mind, and so on. But then they're also involved in carrying out terrorist operations. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the OAS guys were the veterans, the, you know, the paratroopers and the French Foreign Legion, the 11th shot. Could, could you explain what OAS is to people? Uh, I'm not going to try to butcher oh, the, the French whole, pronunciation, the but thing. it's the secret army organization. Okay, yes, so the French, the the English, the English version of it. Yes. Okay, so this goes into the Algerian <laughs> War. Okay, so de Gaulle comes to power after there had been a lot of you know public dispute in France as to whether yes. or not the Algerian War was worth it or not. Everybody thought de Gaulle was going to push ahead and win the war, and then he comes to power and he decided to pull the French out and grant Algeria their freedom. That was very unpopular with certain aspects of the French military. And, and the Pied Noir, too, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, those were the, um, the Algerian, the French Algerians uh, there, who essentially had been organized into terror brigades and what have you. Uh, 
yeah, in the cities and what have you to attack Arabs and whatnot. So it was all very nasty. But um, anyway, so portions of the French military revolt against de Gaulle, and they were pretty much all either Cy-War officers or they were the special operations guys from the 11th Shock Brigade, from the paratroopers and the French Foreign Legion and so forth. Um, they go out and square off against de Gaulle, and uh, it was it was a brutal conflict from 61 to 63, uh, you know, de Gaulle had essentially his own uh, stay-behind network, the SAC, that was loyal mm -hmm. to him, the service action clique or whatever it was called. And um, these guys basically had a covert war against each other. They're running around assassinating each other, assassinating their families and so on and so forth. Of course, they tried to assassinate de Gaulle like, what, six or seven mm -hmm. times or oh, something. Oh, oh, oh. So I will say too many times for me to believe that, like, these at least some of these guys weren't idiots. I mean, or were idiots because you six or seven times. It's like, come on. Well, I mean, you got to remember though, De Gaulle. You know, I mean, he was a serious military guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, his, you know, like I said, that SAC group. I mean, those guys were extremely powerful, and I mean, they really continued to dominate the country for years afterwards. I mean, this is why De Gaulleist really had control of France up until the early 20th century, when really they just started to die out. And I think it's partly because they just still had control of this De Gaulleist, you know, stay behind network, the SAC, that had been, you know, there to essentially ensure the. Uh, you know, the powerhouse of France and the European Union and the de Gaullist vision of this uh, throughout the 20th century. But um, so anyway, these guys are defeated and they decided to carry the war on. In the case of some guys like Yves Gerseric, they were going to carry it on to its proper dimension, which encompassed the entire planet, essentially. So, yes, they set up in, you know, in Portugal and they essentially became great mercenaries of the right. You see them showing up all across the world. And in the case of Ginter, I mean, they carried out acts of terrorism in Italy, in northern or southern Africa, to help sustain the Portuguese colonies there. They were brought into Chile. They were apparently even used to train troops in Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken. So, so they're, just, they're just basically hired guns at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, on top of that... Uh, you know, the French counterinsurgency doctrine, um, Le Guerre Revolutionaire, Revolutionary mm. Warfare, was profoundly influential, okay? I mean, it was developed essentially during the French Indochina War, studying the tactics of Mao Zedong and so forth. And um, they essentially came to the conclusion that the only way they could defeat communism was becoming even more brutal than the communists themselves. Mm. And, um, you know, that was all... Reminds one of uh, Operation Phoenix. Well, I'm getting to that in a second. So, oh, excuse me. <laughs> so anyway, you know, these methods were all rolled out in Algeria to glorious effect. You know, you had the pioneering use of the, the helicopter ride. Uh, you know, mm. you would uh, abduct somebody from the street. They would be tortured brutally for 24 hours, usually with the beloved water pipe method, uh, which we now know as waterboarding. Um, and then after the 24-hour period had passed, it was deemed that they didn't have youthful intelligence now. So it was time for them to commit suicide. And they did that by being flown out in a helicopter in the Mediterranean and thrown into the sea. Um, the thinking being that the body would then wash up on shore and it would traumatize everybody even more. So, you know, you got the full effect of the deal. Right. It's like the mo that's the mob move. Yeah, yeah. That's why so much of this does remind one, especially, you know, you're talking about the sort of secret war that was going on in, in France, low-grade civil war between, between the OAS, uh, between the sort of anti-Gaullist officers and the Gaullist sort of secret militias. And it really does remind me, I mean, they're machine gunning cars, they're mm -hmm. blowing up, you know, they, they're putting car bombs in. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to mob tactics. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, you know, the French security services had had a lot of overlap for years with the, uh, what was it, the Cassisian Brotherhood, the French Mafia, essentially, who controlled. Well, this is why the French Connection, you know, for years was called the French Connection, because it was the French mob, essentially, that controlled the flow of heroin from Indochina into, you know, Europe and so on and so forth. But, I mean, okay, so getting back to, just for a second, for the Laguerre Revolutionary Specialists, these guys, de Gaulle didn't trust them, even the ones that hadn't sided with the OAS. So he started sending them around the world, essentially, to get them out of the country. <laughs> Good so move. These guys, That's smart. But see, these guys, they end up going to the States. They start training the Green Berets. They start Ooh. influencing a lot of the CIA officers, set up the Phoenix program. They get sent to Chile. They start training the military there. They start training mm. the troops in Argentina. And then suddenly you see... Uh, Condor emerging, which essentially is using a lot of the same tactics that they used. They start, like I said, they hooked up with all the Italian neo-fascists through a Ginter Press. These are the guys that weren't officially working for de Gaulle. They start passing on the concepts of like a revolutionaire to them, and that's kind of what leads to the strategy of tension in Italy. So that's you know really the amazing thing that I uh, really uncovered in researching my book was that Phoenix, uh, the Gladio stuff, the strategy of tension, Operation Condor, almost all of this had its origins and the counterinsurgency methods of the French, honestly. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too, when, um, you know, I think the story that at least, you know, popular in America at American universities, the story that gets told about Pinochet in particular, I mean, if this story gets told about Pinochet in particular, (laughs) setting that aside, right. Is that, um, you know, when they talk about us influence down there, they really only mention the kind of economic, you know, the Chicago boys and, and the kind of like new neoliberal consensus coming in, but like very little is remarked on about these institutions that were building up for a long time, you know, in Chile and as, you know, you know, throughout South America that became like key, not just like training centers. I mean, just to get back to, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, circling back to Dignidad right now, but became like key counter, uh, revolutionary training centers and and you know basically torture sites yeah i mean very much and then of course um i mean it wasn't even just the french either that were training the militaries but i mean it had been a lot of you know different european empires and then to some extent the united states as well but uh what it amounted to is essentially in the southern cone um the military was very right-wing, and it tended to associate yes. itself as being much more European than, you know, uh, you know, Latin American or anything to that effect. So uh, that was one of the big reasons why, you know, the anti-communist activities were so effective in the first place in South America, is you already had kind of, a, you know, a rock of ages, so to speak, with the militaries and these different countries already there as kind of a beachhead to begin with. And then, like you're saying, you get all these different other groups that were moving in, especially in the aftermath of the Second World War. So, I mean, it really, you know, kind of became a perfect storm by the 70s almost. And the Chilean, the Chilean security services in particular, DINA, which I don't ask me what that stands for. Please don't do that to me. But <laughs> it was actually headed by a guy in, in the 70s named Manuel Contreras, who himself had been part. He was sort of like a... Uh, Germanophile. Uh, there's a few files, you know, involved in this, but uh, he had been, I believe, maybe part of either pro-German groups or pro-Nazi groups during the Second World War, before the Second World War, and he comes to power. And he's in charge of the, you know, the security services of of Chile, which were very powerful, but not as 
They were as brutal as their counterparts in other countries, but they don't have the same body count. And I think people rack that up to them not needing to, but they actually employed some pretty, I mean, they, 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 they really refined these methods, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, one of the most disturbing things about all of it. I mean, it was almost, it was methodical. It was, you know, in a sense, very scientific. Um, you know, of course, you had the immediate aftermath of the coup. I mean, a lot of uh, potential dissidents were rounded up. and a lot of cases, they were sent to the major football stadium they had there. Uh, you had the whole spectacle with the lights being shown on them and the white noise and just people being randomly taken out and executed. And then you had sort of the whole caravan of death that, uh, yes. you know, was traveling around the country, you know, I mean, executing people in different townships. And I just think that, you know, because the response at the beginning was just so overwhelming, it really put the country into almost a national stupor. I mean, people were justifiably horrified by what they were seeing. And then, you know, as a kind of second level, you had places like the colony, which, you know, became almost a kind of mythological boogeyman in the countryside. You know, I mean, people had to be the fear of being abducted, of being taken to this terrible place where they would be tortured and so forth and uh, quite likely disappeared to ultimately. I know you mentioned uh, sort of strange, almost occult practices of the colony. And and that does that does remind one of that there was a bunch of colonies in in South America set up by let's say non South Americans. I mean, th- you know, there are some similarities here to Jonestown too. Equal big charismatic leader brings a bunch of generally poor people from his country of origin down there and uh, and tortures them. Obviously, Jonestown, you know, everyone for one reason or another, from one you know maybe perpetrator or another died but not the same at uh at colonia dignidad but there are there is this weird pull that people have to go down there and to start these colonies yeah well i mean it was of course obviously land there was very cheap it was easy to find you know vast isolated areas um in many cases i mean many of the locals in these regions would still be natives you know they didn't i mean obviously back in the 60s and 70s i mean they didn't have the you know easiest way to communicate to the outside world what exactly was going on there uh and yeah i mean even though you know nominally you look at a place like jonestown the colony they seem very different but i mean the methods are strikingly similar again you know you've got the long work days you've got the group confessions the separation mm-hmm. of the sexes and what have you the just general attempts to prevent the uh the congregations from even having sex in the first place in fact in both cases really it was the cult leader that was having most of the sex and it was <laughs> yeah um, but funny how that works that always yeah, ends up yeah. working out that way well uh, i will say the cult leader of uh of colonia dignidad was not we he was as is, as goes with the theme of this show, he was a pedophile, it appears. <laughs> um, but the, the weird thing at Colonia Dignidad I was reading about is actually you had to go. The, the head of it was a guy named Paul Schaefer, which I know you know, but our listeners might not. Uh, and you had to actually ask him permission to get married. And you might have somebody in mind, but it was described as like roulette. You might get that person, but more often than not, he is going to now make you marry somebody who is not only far above child-rearing age, but maybe in their 60s or 70s where you're like 20 years old. Yeah, no, I mean, that was a common tactic. I mean, yes, I mean, essentially even trying to make a marriage essentially as you know, joyless as possible. Yes. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, of course, this prevented them from having kids, which was another thing that, um, you know, there was an obsession with trying to prevent the actual members from having kids. But on the flip side of the coin, you had 
uh, orphans potentially being brought over from Germany. I mean, that was something that they were investigated for. Um, there were allegations for years that kids in the countryside in Chile had disappeared near the colony. Um, certainly, as you alluded to, Paul Schaefer was an arch pedophile. Arch pedophile. Abuser of children. I mean, I think, gosh, it was, I think several hundred charges actually of sexual abuse <laughs> against kids. He was ultimately, you know, brought against him in the, uh, the mid nineties. Uh, you know, it was a lot of kids over many years and the members weren't producing them. So, I mean, they had to be brought in from somewhere. Uh, yeah, you know, that's another kind of scandal. I don't think we've ever really, you know, determined exactly where all these kids were coming from in the well, first place or what happened to some of them. Mm. There's well, that's the thing is so. I mean, you you notice that uh, recluse here said in the '90s he was charged because Colonia Dignidad went on for a, quite a long time, including after obviously the fall of the Pinochet regime, uh, and and the Chilean government had some definitely difficulties closing it down because Schaefer had had garnered a lot of power. But this place was also like an armed camp. I mean, they had barbed wire, they had concrete walls, they had uh, advanced advanced communication systems and possibly a chemical weapons lab or at least a chemical lab and they had they made their own guns and they were connected by a guy who i i i i have read on your website about in many other places michael townley can you tell us a little about townley well, Townley was an American. Um, there's been a lot of speculation for years that he had intelligence connections. I mean, that's never really been uh, definitively proven, but obviously it seems pretty certain yeah. that it was some kind of liaisons between the U.S. intelligence community and the DINA, which he ultimately became a member of. Um, but even before then, I mean, he had been involved in these kind of fascist uh, organizations in Chile that have been working to essentially pave the way for the overthrow of Allende in 1973. I mean, a lot of them had, I mean, they were essentially kind of brown shirt type organizations. They yeah. had gone around and, you know, committed minor acts of terrorism, street crime, that type of thing that had actually forced him into exile for a little while. And then after the coup, he was brought back. Uh, you know, he went to work for the DINA and he became uh, essentially the principal liaisons with the colony. But I mean, a lot of, you know, other international fascist groups as well. Of course, I think he was the guy who handled the Cubans, if I remember correctly, and he definitely was the major point of contact with a lot of the uh, the Italian neo-fascists as well. So, I mean, he was he was a big cog in the international network that really uh, came to roost, so to speak, in Chile during Pinochet's regime. Yeah, and he he might have actually been involved in the uh, the bombing of the the Allende's former foreign minister, right, in America. Oh, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, the murder in uh, Embassy Row. Yeah, I think he was one of the guys. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think he mainly avoided charges because he had, uh, you know, testified essentially against uh, other individuals in the DINA or something to that effect. And get, <laughs> yes. You know, immunity. going The classic rats move. Mm. So, yeah. Well, I mean, also, too, potentially as well, just as, as a sleeper agent, for, effectively, for the CIA, a double agent, whatever you want yeah. to call it. So he's keeping tabs on everything. And then finally, right. when they did something that was uh, a little embarrassing to the CIA, well, now he can testify against them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they killed a general, too, I believe, in Italy as well. Why do everyone loves, I got to say, fascists and the CIA, basically every bad guy loves murdering people on Italian soil. <laughs> well, so does the mob, too. So, yeah, exactly! I mean, Everybody! Uh, but they actually, they failed to kill the general, actually. Uh, 
probably they should have used the mafia for that one it was the reason why they shot him in the head but they used like a large caliber uh pistol and that's something that you know the mob knows well you know you always use a 22 or something like that because there's no exit wound the bullet just ricochets around in the skull and pierces the brain from multiple angles but um yeah I believe the Italian fascist who did that was severely <laughs> reprimanded because he didn't use a twenty-two. But yeah, the general managed to survive being shot in the head. But uh, needless to say, he was not involved in politics very much after that. Yes, I, I will say just this is totally unrelated, basically. Well, not entirely, to, but, but mostly unrelated to what we're talking about. A lot of these Italian fascists and a lot of these guys around now, actually, this guy's made a comeback, love Julius Evola. And I'm saying, if you are this big Evola guy and you, you know, you believe in this, you know, heroic, whatever, I mean, it's all bullshit, arist aristocratic shit. You are like, I'm sorry, you're working as a pawn for fucking Western intelligence, you jackass. You're not some fucking Hitler hero, whatever. I, I'm not a big fan of Evola. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually why a lot of the you know major Italian neo-fascists came to distrust Evola after a while because they essentially became convinced that his you know ideology was being used to keep them within the Western alliance and what have you. I mean, of course, you know, you stand around here and talk about how the United States is just as bad as the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. But then it's like, well, but we're going to keep working with the Italian security services, even though we know they're under the dominion of the CIA and what we're essentially doing is keeping Italy in the Western Alliance, but, you know, that's okay. We're just biding our time for the big move down the road. Mm. That's like the classic logic of, like, no, no, we're being strategic. Just wait. Just wait. I swear we've got a plan. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what a lot of these Nazis did post-war. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of these guys still did have, like, an allegiance to the— I mean, there wasn't a Reich anymore, but to the general idea— but yeah. then, like so many other, you know, you know, dreamers and starry-eyed fucking losers, they they basically became, in a lot of ways, pawns. I mean, if if you look at the post-war landscape, it is basically an invisible web across the entire world of these, you know, organizations or these these mercenary groups or you know what have you, intelligence agencies that are really all combined into basically one anti-communist mission with many different uh let's say submissions as well i mean the cubans eventually the cuban exiles went a long way from trying to 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 you know overthrow castro into basically becoming mercenaries and that that seems to be the case with a lot of these guys yeah well, I mean, and that also led to a lot of curious situations in the Cold War. I mean, especially with um, Otto Scrozzini, uh, Hitler's favorite favorite commando, yes. the guy who had rescued Mussolini with a hand glider or something. So, that right. Scarf, Scarface. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. yes. He and, actually uh, he was he actually was the guy who came up with dressing up in American uniforms during the Battle of the Oh Bowl. yeah 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 they were yes they wore enemy uniforms to ambush our troops oh yeah no I mean just a wonderful guy he was also uh, <laughs> I went to the International Spy Museum in Washington D.C. Um, for my honeymoon and they have this whole display <laughs> um, in the James Bond section about how Scorzini was the inspiration for um, um, oh the main guy who was behind Spectra Bloomfield or something like that oh, and yeah, yeah, that yeah. Spectra had essentially been like modeled upon the, you know, post-war networks Grazini had set up. But, I mean, the thing with him, okay, so he famously was used to supply Nazi mercenaries and scientists and what have you to Nazar in Egypt at behest mm. of the CIA. Yep. But the thing is, a lot of the guys he recruited 
were from the Eastern Bloc of Germany. And I mean, yes. this was this was known. You know, I mean, he had like advertisements and newspapers and what have you for these guys. And then you get into just the bizarre situation in Algeria where on the one hand, he's working with the OAS and, um, you know, the Red Hand, these kind of terror organizations and what have you. But then on the flip side of the coin, he's selling arms to the FLN, which was the uh, the rebel group opposing the French there. That's my and, type. That's my type. Where you got to be just like wheeling and dealing on both sides, constantly yeah. moving and grooving. Well, he started that. He started a one of the first kind of, not the first, but a, a really an official mercenary organization with an American soldier in Spain. Yeah, the uh, the Paladin group. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely one of the earlier ones. And I mean, again, it brought in, a, you know, a lot of these different guys, OAS veterans, a lot of the Italian neo-fascists, like you're saying, they even had some Americans involved with it. And, um, you know, again, I mean, they provide services all over the world, including, I think, even Vietnam, some other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, on top of that, though, I mean, the guy had no qualms whatsoever about collaborating with the Soviets. Uh, hell, I mean, he sold out other Nazis to the Israelis. <laughs> so- yes, yeah. Well, he was the crazy thing about the crazy thing about Scorzani is Scorzani. By the way, Scorzani was a true believer, but he was a let's say malleable true believer. Like young Nazis, young skinhead guys all over the uh, you know uh, the 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 West Europe would come and sort of pay homage to him in Spain. But then he was also, uh, you know, supplying guns to basically whoever would buy them. Yes. It's really, it's it's not, and the Israelis hired him, possibly. I mean, they don't know for sure, but it's it's like the the Townley situation where it, it looks pretty certain that the Israelis actually hired Michael Scorzani to carry out some jobs. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and it's insane because, I mean, on the other hand, I mean, he was also the one supplying arms to a lot of Arab groups that were opposed to Israel. But, yeah, like you're saying, then he turns around, he'll sell weapons to the Israelis. I mean, he'll help them assassinate other officials. And just, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's, it's, it's yeah, he actually, in this, I, I read this book, The Beast Reawakens, and they're describing his clients, and it's all these, like, you know, neo-fascist, fascist, right-wing groups. And then it's also the PFLP external command. It's like a split for the PFLP, um, the, the the Palestinian Liberation, like, communist group, mm-hmm. um, who, I mean, the fact that they were being trained by him, I don't know. I mean, maybe you might want to read into that because a lot of intelligence linked to, uh, to, to, that, to that group. But it's, it's astounding. These groups were able to operate basically worldwide with impunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people found them to be very useful in the aftermath of the war, certainly, Um, you know, the connections that they had established. I mean, especially um, in the Arab world, which was, I think, really, you know, a major appeal to the uh, to the Americans going into the Cold War, because uh, we really didn't have a lot of experience in the Arab world outside of Saudi Arabia up to that point. I mean, that had, you know, historically been the dominion of the European powers yes. and so forth. So, you know, we were looking to get influence and the Germans, you know, of course, we had just defeated them. We've basically taken a lot of them into the roles of our intelligence services. So, you know, they have the contacts that we needed. And I kind of think, you know, you see some of that again, you know, with the situation with Nazar. We, you know, even though Nazar had shown a lot of overtures to the Soviets, we were still interested in propping him up because he would give us access to Suez and just mm. the whole area and get the French and the British out, you know, even though they were essentially yes. our allies. So, yeah, just a lot of uh, you know, kind of Machiavellian ploys going on behind all of this. Um, you know, it's something I definitely have been getting into a lot in the, in the book I'm working on now, a special relationship, which is going to, you know, kind of chronicle the history of these blackmail rings, the uh, sexual mm. blackmail rings with Epstein going back uh, to the mm. British and what have you. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just really fascinating, you know, the British 
were obsessed with keeping their influence uh, in the Arabic world in the aftermath of the war, and just continuously the U.S. was trying to undermine them on the one hand to get access to the oil and so on and so forth. But on the flip side of the coin, you know, we still needed the manpower and the expertise that the right, British provided right, right. us. So it was kind of a, you know, a, uh, it was definitely a balancing act. I think it's worth I, I I think it's worth talking about what happened to these guys because especially after the kind of fall of the Pinochet regime, there was this sort of attempt to bring some people to justice, right? And that didn't work out so well. <laughs> Most people got what we would call disappeared in the nineties, um, but there was it was sort of like a great scattering. It seems like. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Schaefer, of course, fled Chile in the aftermath. I think he was, you know, hiding out in Argentina or something like that for quite a few years. I yeah, don't think Argentina. They actually, I think it was almost a decade or something until they brought him back. Um, you know, one of the more disturbing things I kind of learned in researching the book was that, um, you know, so quite a few of the soldiers that had uh, served in the Pinochet regime had actually been uh, hired later by Blackwater. So, <laughs> no! Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say no because... Of course, but my so these oh Jesus Christ! I I I don't like that. You love to see it. You You love love to see see it. it. Yeah. When someone, you know what? When someone tells you who they are, believe them. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And I mean, and I mean, it was actually. I mean, it's just really weird how Eric Prince did that because I mean, on the flip side of the coin, you know, you kind of had the same situation um, in Southern Africa, especially in South Africa when apartheid yeah, ended. Yeah, you know, yeah. you had all of these elite troops and what have you. They went And scientists the, and, and sci- bioengineers, of course. Oh, That's yeah, like, yeah. a lot of people don't know about that stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, they had the whole thing, Project Coast. And, mm-hmm. and see, and this was what was even crazier about all of that is a lot of that was actually overseen by the South African Special Forces. Uh, they were the guys working directly with a lot of the Project Coast people. Wait, what's um, Project Coast to our listeners? It was essentially the chemical and biological warfare program that um, the apartheid government had started to sponsor in the 1980s. But they got into some pretty arcane stuff and uh specifically some of the drugs that they researched for quote unquote uh crowd control one of them was ketamine and another oh. one was mdma uh more commonly known as ecstasy or molly and uh it's really interesting when you kind of look at the timeline of all of this of course the yeah. largest anti-apartheid movement in the entire world in the 1980s was in the uk uh, you know, under the Civilian Coordination Bureau, South Africa had a lot of their own assets. The Civilian Coordination Bureau was kind of the the South African equivalent of Operation Condor. It was designed to go and track opponents of apartheid all over the world. So they have agents, um, you know, all over Europe. Uh, a lot of it is overseen by the South African Special Forces who are working with these Project Coast guys. They start looking into MDMA as a crowd control drug. And then by the late 1980s in the UK, you start having uh, the rise of the whole ecstasy scene, the club scene, mm. the so-called summer of love there in 1989, yes. oh, against the backdrop of uh, you know these South African guys lingering in the background. And then the scientist who oversaw Project Coast, he was busted in the 90s for selling massive amounts of MDMA. So mm. it definitely makes you wonder, uh, you know, was there a coordinated effort behind just, you know, yeah. suddenly well, being flooded with Molly at the end of w- the 80s? <laughs> one's, one's reminded of the original Summer of Love and the aftermath of that where drugs flooded. Uh, I mean, I live here in San Francisco, right down the street from Hate Street Clinic. Do not, listeners, do not read into that. It's a very long street. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, it, same thing here is is the 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 government was experimenting with these uh, with these different drugs, and then all of a sudden you see them flooding the streets. Yeah, I mean, very much so. Um, you know, and kind of getting back what I was you know, getting to before. I mean, it's unsettling because these guys went into the mercenary industry with executive outcomes. Yeah, and then a lot of the guys ended up in another company called Saracen, which mm. uh, Eric Prince started Wait. going into business with. Yeah, in 2010. it's called Saracen. Yes, it's called that, Saracen. It's and they're so actually, they're so on the nose about things. It makes you think that they're just toying with you sometimes. Well, it's really crazy because I it believe means they, Arab. Yeah, yeah, well, and I think they actually set Saracen up, if I'm not mistaken, in like the mid to late 90s, even before the war on terror got going on. So, well, yeah. as our good Turanon listeners will know, they had been planning that one for about three decades. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing when you just look at some of these connections and how, you know, again, you had all of these, you know, fanatical anti-communist regimes in the southern part of Africa mm. and South America and so on. And a lot of the elite troops from these countries just happened to end up in the private military industry going into the early knots with the global war and terror. And incidentally, Eric Prince was the guy who ended up with a lot of them. And then there was, gosh, oh yeah, there was the freaking death squad that the CIA essentially turned over to him. I cannot remember the name of the guy who headed it. Uh, it was Enrique something, but he Hold was- Hold um, death squad where? He was an anti-Castro Cuban, okay? He Classic. had started out working with the Cuban mafia in uh, the 70s and the 80s, essentially as a hitman. And then the CIA started using him uh, going into the whole Iran-Contra Iran era. He ended up as a major paramilitary officer in the CIA in the 90s. And then, yeah, they basically turned him and his network over to Prince and the, um, you know, the global war on terror. They claimed that they never used them because, well, they've decided it was more efficient to use drones to assassinate mm. people. We didn't mm. need this, you know, death squad that the anti-Castro Cuban gangsters set up, um, at least in theory. But we still gave him to Eric Prince. <laughs> that is so so I mean that's something that I've always been curious about because you know we see this 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 post World War II generation of of Nazis and then the sort of the next generation of basically you know what the Nazis became anti-communist hitmen assassins murderers and you know with the end of the end of the Cold War those guys didn't just go all away, all go away right like they 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 spread into their own diaspora like you're saying yeah, essentially. I mean, you know, it just kind of continued on and on. Of course, I mean, you had to change the conversation a little bit. I mean, you know, anti-communism obviously wasn't that viable with the defeat of the Soviet Union. But I mean, gradually, it's kind of shifted into this, you know, anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim yep. thing. And now it's kind of going into hyperdrive with the whole, you know, I mean, anti-New World Order stuff. And yes. Just, uh, so, I mean, it's just really incredible and not in a good way. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's, astounding. I think a lot of people don't understand. A guy that has always sort of linked all these generations to me is Klaus Barbie. Because Barbie, the, the butcher of Lyon, um, which I probably butchered the pronunciation of Lyon mm. myself, uh, the butcher of Lyon, he flees to South America um, and eventually basically sets himself up as like a cocaine warlord. Uh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it was a whole group. I think they called themselves the Fiancés of Death or something like that. <laughs> Jesus um, Christ! 
Yeah, no, I mean, so yes, it's all these former Nazis. They brought in these, you know, Italian neo-fascists. Stefano Del Shayek was another guy who was helping yeah. them out there, too. Um, yes, actually, I, I know it was the guy you were talking about earlier, the head of the DINA, who had come out essentially and acknowledged, I think, in the early knots that he had been handling the cocaine trafficking for Pinochet or something like that. Yes. I believe uh, Stefano was like his contact with the Italian mob. So, yeah, you know, they're doing a little bit of everything and talking the assassinations and everything let's sell a little cocaine on the side you know yeah 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 i i can't remember what i was reading about it but one of these uh sort of drug dealers i don't know if it was on your site or somewhere else one of these drug dealers eventually opened up a hotel and by the way this is nothing to do with what we're talking about but well it's sort of um where the main centerpiece was a statue of John Lennon totally nude wearing a Wehrmacht uh, steel helmet. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was uh, Carlos Litter the, uh, for the Medellin cartel. Yeah, no, I mean, he had basically, he had taken over, what was the one island uh, oh, in the uh, Caribbean, the Kays or something? Gosh, I can't remember the name. But yeah, I mean, he basically would like you know, meet people at the airstrip, like in full blown, like Nazi uniforms and stuff <laughs> like that. And they'd all, you know, stand around and give each other, you know, the Heil Hitler salutes and just, yeah, no, there was a book. John, I think it was John Roberts, the guy who's uh, the Italian mafioso guy who was in the cocaine cowboy documentaries or something. And he knew Carlos, he had been there and seen the whole thing. And he's just like, uh, yeah, that whole Nazi thing, it, it makes people nervous or something. To yes, that it tends to. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, and I mean, this guy was from Colombia, um, and his father, I believe, had been a German or something to that effect, too. So, uh, yeah, there's always been kind of this speculation, well, was he possibly one of those Nazi, you know, tradesmen or something that had immigrated in the post-war years, mm. and Carlos had kind of picked up a little bit of it when he uh, went into drug trafficking? A little bit yeah. of papa. Yeah. But, um... Well Eric Prince is a real, like, funny figure, I have to say. I was just thinking about him because it's it's funny to trace this sort of, like, history where it seems like it's, you know, it is it is these kind of, like, international networks, but they're very much still tied to states in a lot of ways, right? Even if when they're, like, kind of double-crossing each other or whatever, it's these, you know, these kind of, like, state-sponsored or, or state-adjacent. I mean, even in the case of the mob, right? But well, now it's, like, Prince is this, like, supranational figure like he is just hoovered up all of these legacies <laughs> he's like the jeff bezos of militias or something or yeah, mercenaries well i mean it kind of seems like you know progressively there's almost become you know this fat or you know nationalist international i don't know what you really want to yes, call it but i yeah. mean you can really see the cabal in you know the kind of scl group slash cambridge analytica network mm -hmm. um because i mean you start peeling back the layers in that i mean you've got the mercer family involved with that you've got steve bannon they've got corporate ties to the frontier services group which is eric prince's new mercenary firm they've got mm -hmm. ties to the flynn group which is michael flynn's private intelligence group they've got ties to a bunch of israeli groups they've got ties to uh palantir peter thiel's group they've got ties to epstein via one of those um israeli groups gosh i can't remember yes yes now, yeah but, um, whitney webber really or something yeah 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 carbine 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 yes i mean they've got ties to these guys they've got ties to the russian oligarchs and what have you so i mean yes it's just this incredible just network where you I mean you see you know, with the British end, you've got, you know, member, you've got uh, a Montbatten who was apparently involved with the SCL group. I mean, the hmm. Montbattens, um, uh, the infamous Lord Montbatten, that was Prince Philip's uncle, and he's a guy who's been implicated for 
years in pedophile scandals. Yeah. Of course, allegedly he was involved in the whole thing with the King Cora Boys Home scandal. So you've got these British establishment figures linked up to the royal family and what have you involved in it. You've got the Russian Oglarks. You've got the Israelis. You've got these, you know, American ultras like Bannon and Flynn and Prince and what have you. So, I mean, it really is just a smorgasbord of these nationalist elements spread across the world. And, you know, you almost have this highly, or I mean, you don't almost, you literally have this just highly sophisticated cabal that, you know, is very tech, tech savvy as well. And I mean, I think there you kind of see this aspect, as I kind of talked about before, the psychological warfare aspect that closely aligns with these, you know, special operations and so forth. And you can see it really crystallized in the SCL group and Cambridge Analytica and the ties into mercenary firms like Eric Prince's. I mean, it's a, it's a study. One thing I, 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 I actually, I'll mention this later, but there's, there's a Ghislaine Maxwell tie too, because her ex-boyfriend, a knight of Malta, uh, was involved in the Wonga coup. Uh, the coup oh, um, are you talking about Simon Mann, maybe? No, uh, no, no, no. He was a Simon Mann adjacent. His name was Count Gianfranco Chigona Mazzone. Um, okay. He was, uh, he was, he was basically involved and accused of being on the Wonga list for the for Thatcher's son, son's coup. Mark Thatcher, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And see, uh, that had all those, you know, executive outcome guys, too, because Simon Mann had been a major shareholder and executive outcome, and then he had gotten into business with Tim Spicer later with the Sandline Group. Of course, Spicer went on to form uh, the Aegis Company, which is just a huge private military company. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just interesting, too, that you see Ghislaine Maxwell. But that's not entirely surprising, because um, I believe... Well, I mean, obviously, Robert Maxwell had quite close ties to Margaret Thatcher. They oh, yeah. apparently got on famously. So, uh, f- Funny yeah. for a labor MP, but I guess certain things, no, no party. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, Maxwell was really a creation going back to uh, Sir Charles Hambro, who was a hardcore Tory. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really just this group of special operations executive veterans uh, surrounding Hambro who basically gave Maxwell Pergamon, gave him all the money to buy right, it, and right, set right. it up and what have you. So yeah, uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I've, I believe when Maxwell had originally tried to you know, run for labor in the early 60s, there was a lot of suspicion around him because he had pretty much always been associated with prominent Tories and what yeah. have you up to that point. So yeah, it's a problem big question as to how cosmetic all the labor stuff was. I mean, well, certainly for a, a professed socialist, he despised trade unions with yes, a fanaticism. Yes. Yeah, it seems like very convenient cover, strangely uh, enough. I always thought my my sort of uh, dark horse theory, it's not even a dark horse theory, my regular, whatever, tan, sandy-colored horse theory is that uh, is that he was like, fuck, well, Rupert Murdoch's a right-wing media baron, but that means there's space for a left-wing media baron. <laughs> I don't actually have to be left wing, but getting elected as a labor counselor will certainly help sell some papers. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something to that. Like you're saying, I mean, Murdoch, and then there's also um, uh, James Goldsmith, I mean, really the big architect of Brexit there. So, I mean, they kind of had the market covered and the right. So, yeah, I mean, Maxwell had to find a niche for himself somewhere, I suppose. (laughs) So, we got to wrap up soon, but there's a couple things I want to ask you. I mean, first of all, what we've seen is that there was a giant globe-spanning uh, neo-Nazi intelligence agency network post-World War II. And then that, that network has moved into something else now. Is there still some sort of like globe-spanning network, but what, what, are, what is it? Well, I mean, I think very much, you know, when we were kind of talking earlier with SEL Group, Cambridge Analytica, I mean, you see, you know, kind of the public face of that. But I mean, certainly now... 
it's much more of a private network, not really, you know, close to the states. And um, I think, you know, really the big objective of this is ultimately to bring about a kind of neo-medievalism, neo-feudalism, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, essentially, you know, I think now, especially with the ratcheting up of tensions with China, I mean, people would love to break China down into multiple different countries. I think there are people here who would love to break the U.S. down into smaller countries. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you know, you remove these obstacles there's nothing to stop these big multinationals, which already have budgets that are larger than many, you know, countries to begin with. And then, you know, in the case of, you know, Africa and the uh, the post Cold War years, I think you kind of saw the blueprint there uh, with executive outcomes. The two big guys behind it were Simon Mann and Tony Buckingham. Uh, both of them were special operations veterans, but Buckingham also owned, I think it was like Hermitage Oil. He owned a bunch of diamond companies and what have you. And what he would do is he would go into a country like Angola. And he'd say, you know, um, I'd like to buy access to your oil rights and I'll start paying you guys uh, some generous proceeds for that. Just, you know, the ruling elite, of course, not the general people. And they'd say, well, you know, that, that sounds great, but, um, you know, this rebel group controls that area of the country, so we can't really do anything for you. So Tony would be like, that's no problem. Tell you what, I'll loan you the money, you'll sell me the oil rights, (laughs) and you can hire my mercenary company. They'll go in and push those rebels right out for you, and then we'll even leave stay-behind troops there to make sure that the the oil fields stay liberated. You gotta love it. That's smart business thinking. And I mean, I just, you know, that already seems like it's being set up now. I mean, you know, you look at a place like Apollo Capital, which is run by Leon Black, who's been a close friend Mm. of Trump's for years now. Yes, also friend of fucking Epstein. And a friend of Epstein, yes, absolutely. He owns, Apollo owns a company called Constellus, which is the company that currently owns what Blackwater is known as, Academia or XE, whatever the heck it's calling itself now. I think it's it's XE, I don't know what the fuck. Yeah, it's changed its name a couple times. But Constellus, it owns, you know, the company formerly known as Blackwater, and it owns Triple Canopy, which was another yeah. one of the big three private military companies. And then you've got Steve uh, Stephen Feinberg, the head of Cerebus Capital. He's currently in the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, and a guy a lot of people say is going to be tapped eventually to do a review of the intelligence community. Mm. Uh, Cerebus owns DynCor. Right. We've done an episode on DynCorp before. <laughs> so yeah. you already kind of have this setup where it's like you've got these big, you know, venture capitalist firms that already own effectively their own private military companies. Uh, you know, if we keep going in the place that, uh, in the, you know, direction it seems like we're going, you know, these companies are going to be able to move in in mass and just start yeah. seizing resources all over the world with these military firms. Well, it's, it reminds, I mean, I know we have to wrap up, but it really reminds me of the East India Company. Like, you know, that's like how it basically will start operating. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, very much. I think, you know, that's what we're kind of seeing with the mini East India companies being set up in Africa in the 90s. And now, you know, we're getting into the big East India companies (laughs) in this neo-feudal environment. Totally, totally. I mean, it is not lost on me that Eric Prince, I believe, didn't he print like an op-ed? In the New York Times or something calling for a new East India company, or at least it was reported maybe that he was talking to Trump about setting up a new East India company in Afghanistan. Well, yeah, essentially he wanted them to privatize the war in Afghanistan and just, you know, have it totally fought with private military companies. And that's interesting because Feinberg, the guy just mentioned, would be the one probably tapped to review the intelligence community. He's friends with Eric Prince. In fact, he actually talked about buying Blackwater, I think, in 2010 or something. So these guys are all buddy-buddy. Do you think he's going to maybe listen to Prince's plan when he's talking about reforms? Quite possibly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these guys are pretty much already in place. And, 
I mean, it's interesting in terms of the COVID situation now, because I know Trump is already using that as another excuse to try to pull our troops out of Afghanistan. So that happens. Chaos breaks out. Who are you going to call? Eric Prince. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's I hadn't really thought about that. That's uh, that's he's a dangerous dude. People, yeah. yeah that's he's yeah. He scares me. Well, there's not no a lot one, of people that scare me, but he's on the list. At least no one else in his family is anywhere close to the halls of power. <laughs> <laughs> at least his sister isn't deciding what fucking books your kids read. Um, so, uh, recluse. I like saying that more than Steven Satter because it it sounds fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> it does. I mean, not that Steven Satter doesn't sound cool, but Recluse sounds really cool. Um, I am so glad you joined us. This is a, this is this is fantastic. I'd love to have you on again sometime. Yeah, I will say, any anybody out there, you've got to check out V. Uh, you, you call it Vice Up. I always said Vice Up, but I also That's have never okay. said it out loud to anybody. Well, it's not a real word. So, I mean, there's no real formal pronunciation anyway. <laughs> but I mean, I always went with Vice Up though. But uh, yes, it's V I S U P View V I E W all one word dot blogspot dot com. And if you are a true and on listener, this is in your wheelhouse. Please read this website. But lots of good stuff on it. Love the series on the occult and special forces. Um, but thank you so. And, and let's plug the book again. I'm going to have you say it because I can't remember the address to get it at. Sure. It's uh, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History. It's available on Amazon at and also at our official store, which is The Farm Podcast. That's all one word, thefarmpodcast.store backslash. And uh, if you aren't tired of listening to me by now, you can also check me out at the podcast, uh, which, you can be, which can be found at thefarmpodcast.com. So, yeah, give us a listen sometime. Amazing. Yeah, we'll link to all that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Recluse, and we'll see you on the other side. We gotta do an episode on Eric Prince. We've been talking about that for a while, but we gotta go kind of like deep dive into him. I'm not. I'm not kidding. There's like I have a list of maybe like ten people Mm -hmm. that like legit scare me in terms of like power and stuff like that, global power. And he's 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 on the list. We named or 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 the recluse named several of those during that last part. There, two names in particular, Teal and Prince. I think of them basically. As as if if they like a unit. if they were a bug they'd be the same kind of beetle. Bezos is another one on there. Mm. I won't reveal. I'll slowly through the rest of the Trunon year, and then some. Perhaps I'll slowly reveal my list. Mm-hmm. My list of scaries. Yeah, Liz has her list of scaries, and I have my list of. Uh, let's just say I won't even make the noise. Let's just say the Belden noise people. Uh, and I'm not <laughs> oh, going to reveal. I'm just. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal any of their names. In fact, I won't say anything to them. Um, <laughs> let's change the subject. <laughs> I don't want to get too deep into that, baby. All right, all right, all right, all right. So I guess we're signing off now, huh? Yeah, it's it's good to see you. It feels this, this went by so quickly. It did. Well. But we'll do it again soon. Yeah. My name is Liz. I embrace... We're joined by producer Young Chomsky, who does the music as well.
And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.